0: Testament reading for the 18th Sunday after Pentecost is from Ruth, chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Until they came to Bethlehem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I mentioned at the start of the service that this morning's sermon text is from the book of Ruth. Now, it's okay if you have not read through the book of Ruth. And I probably won't even ask for a show of hands. But, uh, you know, blink twice if you've read the book of Ruth. Okay. I can't tell if anybody has, but I'm too far away from you. And there's, there's too many of you. All right. That's okay. That's not a prerequisite for the Lord Jesus speaking life and grace and renewal to you this morning. Ruth is a narrative. Um, It's not poetry. It's not uh, a a letter like an epistle that has a logical flow that maybe the Apostle Paul, for example, in 2 Timothy was building on and developing through the course of the letter. Ruth is a dramatic narrative. It's a story. And let's think for a second. What makes stories good? Think back to your middle school or high school English classes. Relatable characters, an engaging setting, rising tension, falling tension. Did anyone else have to draw those plot diagrams? Yes, I'm seeing some nods back there. All right. All things, right, that you might have come across before, draw the plot diagram for To Kill a Mockingbird, for example. Another narrative device that's often used to spice up a story is the surprise reveal. Such a reveal hardly ever occurs at or near the beginning of the story because in that case, it would just be part of the exposition. It's not really much of a surprise if it comes right at the, right at the beginning. You don't have enough context for it to be surprising. It just comes and okay, that's, that's part of the setting of the story. Sometimes, a lot of the times, it comes at the end of the story and in that case, it reframes the entire story up until that point. You look back and you think, wow, no way. That, all those other little interactions between these characters, right? If you've read the Harry Potter books or if you've just watched the movies, when you find out all along that Snape, I mean, he kind of hated Harry, but he loved Harry's mother, Lily. And then, wow, that, you see his character in a whole new light. The story changes in a big way after you've already read like four or five of the seven books. Have you ever seen The Sixth Sense? With the... Uh, Bruce Willis, in, in that movie, there's a young boy. He's troubled by visions of the dead. Now, this isn't going to get too spooky. It's, we're approaching Halloween, but don't worry. We're not going to go there. This young boy seeks out the help of a psychologist, played by Bruce Willis, right? And um, this whole time you're watching the movie, you're led to believe that the psychologist is helping this young boy with his condition. And then, and this has been out for a long time, all right? So, like, if I spoil this for you, that's kind of on you at this point. The twist comes at the end when it's revealed that the psychologist has been dead the whole time. And he's able to interact with his boy because that's what the boy does. I see dead people, right? That's the, we all said that on the school bus without understanding what it all meant. That movie came out a while ago. Other times the surprise doesn't even come until another installment in the saga. Star Wars, A New Hope came out and boy was that a phenomenon not really too many big, tremendous twists in that one, but man, when the greatest Star Wars movie ever created came out, the Empire Strikes Back. Near the end of that movie, do you remember what happens? You killed my father. Luke. He says, I am your father. Mm. Now, that's, that was a wild twist that I, there wasn't really a whole lot of foreshadowing up to that point and there was a whole other movie that came after that, right, where that was a major, major plot device. The story of Ruth contains elements of both of these kinds of uh, surprise, reveals, narrative twists. Some things happen in the middle, some things even happen right at the beginning. There's foreshadowing. Other times, uh, or other parts of Ruth, it is revealed at the very end of the book. Um, And really what happens at the end of the book is a genealogy, everyone's favorite bit of biblical uh, (laughs) genre of literature. So-and-so begat so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, right? Those are, man. If you ever have a devotional Bible reading plan and you get to like nine chapters of genealogy in 1st or 2nd Chronicles, you think, what on earth is the Lord gonna speak to me through this? turns out those are pretty important to the flow of the Old Testament And what is revealed at the end of the book of Ruth is that this obscure love story that happens during the time of the judges uh, would give birth eventually to King David, King Solomon, and then many generations later, King Jesus. What I hope for us all to realize this morning is this, the significance of what God is doing in us and through us might be hidden from us. Excuse me. The significance of what God is up to in our lives is something that we may not be able to grasp now. But we will see it revealed. Maybe later in our lifetime. Maybe on the last day when he who began the good work in us brings it to completion. Because you believe in Christ. Because you believe in Christ, I can confidently say that he has chosen each one of you for his grand purposes. And one day, better than any plot twist we're aware of, more satisfying than any surprise reveal, we will see how God did amazing and glorious things through each one of you. Let's start with a 20,000 foot view of Ruth. Ruth seems to have been written to offer backstory on the life of King David and King David's family. And that's probably why it's placed right before First and Second Samuel in the Old Testament. It is a masterfully composed piece of literature. The more you read it, the better it gets. Little details, like at, at the start of our reading, like in the days when the judges ruled, there's one of them, right before Judges, or right before Ruth, is Judges, which is like the worst that it gets in all of the Old Testament as far as horrible stuff that people were doing. That book starts and ends with there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was a bad, bad time to be alive. Then right after Judges, right before we get to First and 2 Samuel and we start to see some order being made out of this chaos, we get this lovely little story of Ruth. It goes on. A man in Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Bethlehem. Where have you heard that before? Bethlehem. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. (laughs) Right? We sing about Bethlehem every year. It's not just a coincidence. It's not just oh, isn't that nice? Bethlehem here in the Old Testament. The author of Ruth wants us to know right from the start, this is, we need to pay attention to where this person is from. It's like if you're traveling, who knows where. If you go to Europe, and you come across someone who says they're from Sibley County. You're like, what? Sibley County? Where in Sibley County? And then they say, oh yeah, uh, well, I'm, I'm from Gibbon actually. What? You know, the name of a location that you recognize perks your ears up and all of a sudden you're very interested. That's what's supposed to happen for us from the word go with the book of Ruth, a man from Bethlehem. Bethlehem also means house of bread in Hebrew. And why are they leaving the house of bread? Because there's no bread to be had there. There's a famine. All this stuff that we've got going around going on around here, harvesting, there was nothing to harvest. Nothing was growing. There was no food. They had to leave the house of bread for a foreign country. God's own people, whom he was supposed to be providing for, right? At least according to what he said. All of these little details. The more you dig into them, the more you read the book of Ruth, the more you study it, the more it rewards that effort. And yet God is mentioned on only two occasions in the whole book of Ruth. Two occasions. Once in our reading and once in chapter 2. So it's not like a very um, obviously spiritual book. It's it's not a very uh, dramatic book in terms of like big-time events in the Old Testament, not like Exodus, not like Genesis, not like First and Second Samuel with King David and Saul <clears throat> and all of that. No. Now, there's too much to say about Ruth to cover it all in one sermon, and I'm not going to try. I just want to highlight this. Ruth demonstrates how God works through things that are ordinary, that are mundane, even that seem unspiritual, things like family relocation, things like famine. Things like harvest, romantic love, loyalty, family ties. And God does work through these things with great consequence. It's not just hilltop experiences like the youth gathering that we, you know, we take our high schoolers to every three years where God does amazing things. When you're walking through the valley just putting one foot in front of the other, Maybe even when life seems really tough and you feel far away from God, when you feel spiritually thirsty and dry, God is still at work. Also worth noting here is that Ruth was a foreigner. Where else did we hear that this morning? In the gospel reading. The sons, these 10 lepers were healed and Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest. Not to say, get out of my hair. (laughs) But because, according to Leviticus, they had to be pronounced clean by a priest, in order to be reintegrated in society. The lepers were living by themselves. No one was able to touch them. It was unlawful for them to even approach Jesus, which is why they shouted, Jesus, have mercy on us. So Jesus sends them to do what is gonna result in them being reintegrated in society. And the only one who comes back to say, thank you, Lord, is an Israelite. No, it's a Samaritan, a foreigner, Ruth was a foreigner. And not just in the neutral sense, she was a Moabite woman. The nation of Moab came from this unsavory origin where Lot and his family fled Sodom and Gomorrah back in Genesis. Lot's wife turned back even when she was not supposed to. She turned into a pillar of salt. And then Lot's daughters are concerned, how are we gonna have a family? So they get their father drunk and they get pregnant from him. And that's the origination of the nation of Moab. And Moab was not really friendly to Israel after the exodus when they were coming back into the land. Israelite young men were forbidden strictly from marrying Moabite women. And yet here we have these circumstances bringing this Israelite, and not just any Israelite, but Ephrathites from Bethlehem, right? The city of David, the city where Jesus was born. These are like the there's like, like, Israelite royalty here. And they're driven into Moab. Uh. And the sons marry Moabite women. Also, uh. that's not supposed to happen. And yet, God didn't strike them with lightning bolt to smite them or whatever. God used this family and as you can read through Ruth, even, even just the brief lesson from this morning, it's not a very happy story. These women were not left in a good situation. Naomi's husband passed away. Her son's passed away. So you have these women with no man in their lives to help them navigate society in that day. You were in a bad spot. If you were a woman whose husband had died, whose father-in-law had also died. And yet God included this woman in the family lineage of Jesus. So here's what I want you to see and hear. Here's what I want you to take from this this morning. Just like he did for Ruth, God loved you and he chose you. Yes, really, you. He chose you in Jesus Christ. He chose you to be part of Jesus' family. And he uses you to bring others into Jesus' family too. Jesus' family tree contains some surprises. It's not just Ruth. It's the woman Rahab. Remember when the Israelites are approaching Jericho and they've got to walk around it seven times? Rahab was also included in the family lineage of Jesus. God doesn't only use the expected in order to redeem. In fact, God makes a point to not just use who and what is expected, what intuition would say, in order to redeem and to save. Ruth is a surprising inclusion in Jesus' family because she was a foreign woman. She was not one of God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. She was an unlikely candidate for ethnic and national reasons. You and I are unlikely candidates too, primarily because of our sin. Why would God choose us? Why would he choose me and you prideful as we are, self-seeking as we are inwardly focused we use people more than we sacrifice ourselves for them we fight with our spouses, we're harsh with our children, we're all myself included, more easily stirred up to action to do something by things of the world than we are by things of the kingdom of God I'll ask it again, why would God choose us? You see, you think he would want a better bunch than us. I mean, I'm I'm yours and you're mine. And the reality is there's not much, uh, you know, among all of us that God would see and be like, that's great. I want to use that. And that's not just an us thing. That's an all of the world thing. And here's why God chose us. Because God has a thing for making old things new. God likes making ugly things beautiful. He likes retooling, renewing, restoring. When Jesus stepped out of the grave that first Easter morning, he still had holes in his hands and in his feet and a hole in his side. He was renewed. He was clothed with immortality. It wasn't a totally new thing. Just throw away the old one. I'll build a new one. It'll be better. In Jesus Christ, he has made you perfect. He's forgiven your sins. He's taken away your shame. He's binding up the wounds in your heart, on your body even. One day you'll be fully healed. But for now, we persevere in hope of what Jesus is doing within us day by day. Because of what God's Son has done for us, we shine like stars in God's eyes. St. Paul, explaining salvation to the Ephesian church, they were also outsiders in that they were, well, a lot of them were non-Jewish converts. You know, Paul, if you've noticed in the New Testament, he makes a big deal a lot about to the Jews and to the Gentiles, Greeks and barbarians. You know, he's talking to all people, not just one specific ethnic group. Paul says it like this, God is so rich in mercy. This is from Ephesians 2. He's so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Talk about a plot twist. God takes you and me, unlovable, rebellious, ungrateful, and sinful. He unites us to Jesus in baptism, and then he works in our lives in such a way that all creation will look back and see the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is going to point to us in all future ages, forever. Our lives, ordinary, mundane, though they might seem like most of the time. He doesn't do it through big, grandiose mountaintop experiences where it's immediately apparent to us. No, like the book of Ruth, it happens through things like family relocation and loyalty in the midst of extreme stress. It happens through love stories. It happens through agriculture and harvest. Good news, farmers. The angels are talking. They're seeing God's grace and his incredible, the riches of his incredible love shown toward all of us in combining, in field work, in all of the things that you do that seem very unlike, they have nothing to do with your faith. Maybe nothing to do with the Catechism or the Bible or Holy Communion or preaching or any of that. All of us might often feel very unspiritual but all that means is that we feel unspiritual. Jesus has begun a good work in you and he will bring it to completion on the last day. And then you'll be amazed at how all things have been worked together by him, and how that is all revealed to you then. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.